Welcome to CarePod, a safe place to educate, inspire, and renew the caregiver. Listen in with our host, Dr. Kipley Bell, as she interviews different experts along the caregiving journey. Via Swaminathan is the Associate Dean of Undergraduate Studies at St. John's University in Queens, New York. She is the oldest child of Indian immigrants and has lived in New York, Texas, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C. Her parents made sure that she visited India regularly as a child, and travel is an integral part of her identity. Listen in. So I am here today with the Associate Dean of Undergraduate Studies at St. John's University in Queens, New York, Vidya Swaminathan. So honored to have you with us today. You know, we have had some conversations offline. We share some things in common in terms of, you know, being busy professionals with you know, caregiving journeys, you know, the cultural aspects of caregiving, taking care of one's own, et cetera. And, you know, I said, hey, you know what? I'd love to for you to join me. This is an international podcast and particularly my interests around what, you know, other cultures are doing, you know. So before we go there, because I'm really interested, I, I really feel that, in the states we are making our caregiver journeys or the way in which we honor our loved ones more complicated than it needs to be. So I was very interested in your background and your bio as far as you you expressing your familial uh, initiative, for lack of a better word, to make sure that you and your siblings were very much aware of your culture and how to you know, be, you know, aware of your heritage as children and then ultimately into your adulthood. So if you can kind of begin there for us laying the foundation of, especially you being the oldest and, you know, what that's meant for you and and your journey. Thank you so much, Kip, for this wonderful invitation. It is truly my honor to be featured on this podcast because you do such good work and you exhibit such care for people's stories as well as their journeys. And I just want to appreciate that for a moment. As far as my own story is concerned, it's fairly straightforward. I am of South Asian descent, specifically South Indian. My parents come from the state of Tamil Nadu. Tamil is our ethnic language. And they immigrated here in the 70s. My younger brother, sister, and I were all raised in the U.S. But one of the things that I really appreciate about what my parents did for us was to ensure that every summer vacation, we were either in India visiting our family, or there was a member of our family who came over and stayed with us in the U.S. So it was usually my grandmother, My mother's sister came a couple of times, my father's sister, my father's older brother and his wife, my grandparents from my paternal side. That helped maintain a pretty continuous connection with our culture and the elements of our specific ethnicity. Because 
India, for those who are unfamiliar with the country, is really a confederacy. You cross state borders and people are speaking another language, eating a different type of cuisine, wearing different clothing. So I would compare India to Europe. So just as when you go from Germany to France, there's a marked difference. Even though there's some cultural similarities, there's a marked difference in dress, language, culture. It's the same as crossing state borders. So it was great because when we would visit India, we had an opportunity to stay in two very different regions because my mother's family had settled in the northern part of the country. My father's family was still in the south. So we got to see urban life. We got to see rural village life. So I think that our experiences were far more diverse within the country itself than many people think to do for their first generation children. So I'm very grateful because when we all grew up and moved out of the house and began to establish separate households, my parents chose to retire and move back to India. Interesting. There's a, that is, I'm kind of dumbfounded in a way at my own ignorance because, you know, I did not know that, you know, to to speak, Mm -hmm. you know, you think of these countries as just one country and one way of being. Right. So that that's very interesting. So how has that shaped you in terms of, you know, even your way in education and helping, you know, upcoming students and people understand how culture relates and interrelates in America, you know, how to maintain your identity and your heritage while still, you know, assimilating, for lack of a better word? Well, I think that it, I think it's a continuous journey and a learning curve for a lot of people. And I put myself in that same category because as I get older, I encounter new situations that require me to continuously reevaluate who I am as a person. I think that most people who come to this country have other cultural roots that are strong enough that they do have to make the code switching a part of their existence. And even people who aren't immigrant, who aren't from recent immigrant communities, um, have a certain amount of code switching that they have to engage in if they, for example, come from religious minorities or if they are not viewed as cultures that are part of the norm, whatever we want that to be. Everyone seems to know what the norm is, but it's very difficult to describe it. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, not to interrupt, but I think something you said was about really uh, that it's a continual process. Yeah. You know, that we do, we all feel like we have to arrive to this state of betterness today, you know? where that can just continually, you know, it's a continual process. So that's very interesting. Well, I think that we all buy into, especially as part of American culture, because maybe the word assimilation is better, a better suited word might be integration, because there's a way in which I feel like I am weaving elements of my Americanness in with my Indianness to create mm-hmm. something completely new. 
And I think a lot of people engage in that. That's just part of identity formation. So I don't want to make that singular to people with my background or with immigrant backgrounds in general. I think there's a certain amount of weaving that has to go on. But I also think that there's a false narrative of this progress that somehow you're going, the cloth is going to be finished. Your weaving will be done. You'll have a lovely, I don't know, a throw to put on the back of your couch. And it doesn't work that way. In fact, it's, it's continuous. And that's because life continues to throw us curveballs. We have changes. Things that we ever assumed were constants just aren't. And I think one constant everyone takes for granted who comes from a, you know, a family background where you have close connections with family is the constancy of your relations, meaning your parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and that constant is always a myth because you are always destined to lose them at mm. some point, at least mm. in physical form. So that's something that I, I think, again, destroys this whole progress narrative and the idea that you're ever done. Yes. So what, you know, thinking back to those early memories of, you know, visiting and the consistency in which you did over your life you know, what have you extrapolated in terms of care and honor and family and heritage? Like, what do you think you have held most dear and what have you been happy to shed? Well, I came from a relatively conservative household. And as the oldest and the oldest girl, there were a great deal of family expectations put on me. And I think the biggest expect, they were all gendered, of course. I was expected to grow up, take care, help take, help my mother take care of the family. And once I got to a certain age, I was expected to get married, produce a family of my own and continue the generations onward and onward and onward. I understood this was my responsibility and my duty. And I care deeply about my family. I'm close to them. And I do think that there are some really beautiful traditions. I'm deeply grateful for my close-knit family. And that was a tradition that I was very happy to let go of. I chose instead to pursue a very different path. I decided very young that I wanted a PhD. That takes time. That takes effort. I humored my parents for some time about the idea of an arranged marriage. And this came to the idea that that was not possible for me. I was too American for that. I was too Western. And so I opted not to have an arranged marriage. And that resulted in my not getting married until later in life and choosing not to have a family, which is very antithetical to the conservative upbringing I have and yet oddly mirrored by my family background, because in what's truly unique in any family that I have ever encountered of Indian descent is that in my mother's family, she's the oldest of four and she is the only one who ever got married Interesting. and whoever had children. So it's very, I, I just feel like I'm following in their footsteps. It's like, okay, this is non-traditional, but hey, look, I've got a tradition to follow. So, hey, that works out real well. Right. And, and I find it interesting hearing that because those 
in your likeness that are that are preceding you or or following you, I should say, not preceding you, are you going to take very similar paths? They will, you know, to, to use your term of being westernized, will be more likely to to you know be to to lean towards more of a career minded path with maybe familial traditions later on in life. So how did the, just pivoting a little bit, the weight of kind of age and honoring your parents and them making the choice now to go back to India, change the landscape of your family in terms of your siblings and caregiving? Well, it's very interesting that first, I just want to comment that the landscape did in fact change. So I really like this question because being that I was unmarried, I was also seen as the most mobile. So I had this erroneous expectation that a lot Mm. of the caregiving responsibilities would fall to me. And that's not really how it happened. That's not how it worked out. My brother is, uh, has one child And my sister is also married with a child and living in the UK. And honestly, the three of us have done whatever we could to be there. Now, I will say that I have been able to devote the most time, mainly because of the kind of work that I do as an academic. I had more flexible time. My brother and sister have more traditional kinds of jobs. Not so much my sister, definitely my brother. So they had to put in for vacation time. As a faculty person, I had the summers. And that was that gave me an opportunity to spend a considerable amount of time with my family in similar ways. It's funny, my aunt will still grouse about the fact that when we come to visit India, any of the three of us, we can only give them two or three weeks. And that's, that's a pittance. She's used to having us <laughs> for three months. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, well, we're grown now. We mm-hmm. have jobs. And mm-hmm. I had to recognize that not only do I have a job, even though I can take the time, I don't have to spend it in India because I don't have to be, I don't have to spend every bit of my free time caring for my family or my parents because they're fine. They were doing well. They have a wonderful support network, for which I'm very grateful. And I think that's something that's very present in my mother's mind, especially. She has never wanted to feel like she is a burden to anyone. So she has made very clear plans on how to make sure that she's able to take care of herself for as long as she is on this earth. And when my father got ill, she was the primary caregiver. We gave support, but she was the primary caregiver. Interested in learning more about the Impactful Caregiving Affiliate Program? Reach out, connect at impactfulcaregiving.com. What boy, there was, there's so much freedom that you gave in those statements because there are so many siblings and families that I sit with that there is a, there is an element of resentment 
Um, because yes, that more mobile quote unquote person in the family, the one that may be career-minded or unattached or, you know, not seemingly obligatory to, you know, children or other, you know, familial obligations seems the one that should be passed, passed with the, the, you know, caregiver role. Mm -hmm. So, you know, giving credence to that to say, you know, no, that, you know, I just chose a different path, but that doesn't mean that my plate is less full. So that, that is really, really key there. And then across so many caregivers that I sit with here, the theme that the planning, the early preparation and planning so that your life can look like, you know, as independent as it can be as you age. So take take us there, take us through that, you know, when your father first became ill, that journey, you know, in terms of your mom's path, and then ultimately through yourself and your siblings. Well, first, I will give a lot of credit. I am fortunate in that I come from a family that is tight knit. And whatever petty resentments my siblings and I may have over little squabbles here and they're all very small. They're very petty. And for the most part, we work well together. And part of the reason that I feel like I can take the time for myself that I do is because if my siblings feel any kind of way about it, they have not bothered to share it with me, which I'm okay <laughs> with. They can continue <laughs> that to themselves. But the truth is, is I think each of us realize that we need to live our lives and we can only do what we are capable of doing. And it just does not serve anybody to look to someone else and say, why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z? It's just not fruitful. So I respect and appreciate that. So I'm, I'm definitely grateful to have the siblings that I do. I, as it happened, my brother was visiting India. After I had initially planned a trip to India in 2020. And of course, everything shut down because of COVID. So I was forced to cancel that trip. Now in hindsight, all of us recognize that's when my father's descent really began. He had dementia and he was losing his ability to function. But because the world had suddenly become so tiny, that ability to function was masked because he was confined. And more importantly, it also helped speed up his descent because mm. he lacked the kinds of stimulation that may have been critical in staving off some of the deterioration. My brother went to visit my father in 2021, and the day after he got there, my father fell ill. He was there for the most scary, torturous time. Because he was there when my father was hospitalized, but before he was hospitalized, when he was bedridden, then when he was taken to the hospital and it looked as though the end was near, he was texting my sister and I, giving us updates. I'd always thought that it would be me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't me. It was him. Luckily, my father recovered from that initial moment and we all made plans to see him. So we cycled through to give maximum coverage. So after my brother left, my sister went and she stayed for two weeks. And then after she left, I went. 
and I stayed for two weeks. And because I work in academia and I have the good fortune to have some work flexibility and some very caring employers, I was able to take the entire month of December to go and stay in India. And I can't say that I was much help at the caregiving piece. I was definitely a lot of help at the emotional support piece. I can't tell you how many times I overheard my mother telling somebody on the phone that I was so scared, but now that Vidya's here, I have no, I have such courage. I have the courage of an elephant. Wow. wow. So I think it was just needing somebody there to talk things over with because my mother had spent 50 years with this person and this person was her person to talk things over with. And suddenly he wasn't there. And while she's perfectly capable of making decisions, she's used to, she is in the habit of speaking or talking things over. So that was something that was very meaningful to her. And I was really glad that I was there, even though by that point, my father didn't know me. He had gotten to a point where he was not conscious for most of the time. And when he was conscious, he rarely understood where he was. And I think in the 28 days that I was able to spend there at his bedside, he recognized me about four. So take me, I guess, to, you know, that older or oldest, you know, sibling responsible stuff, you know, like, did you have any of that baggage that, you know, you had to be the one, one and two, you know, being, having to kind of shoulder that strength and, you know, carry that emotional support for everyone else, you know, have you had the time to, to unpack and revisit the emotional aid of it all since? Well, I would say there are a couple of questions in there. So I want to make sure yeah, that I yeah. answer all of them. I would say that I had a untraditional journey and response in all of this. There were a couple of things that I was made aware of during, it was just more of a self-awareness during the course of all of this process. I'm not the most capable caregiver in my family. I felt like I had to be. So I want to answer the question about being the oldest and feeling the burden with the response that said, that's what I thought I was supposed to be like. There was no mention given of playing to my strengths. That's not one of my strengths. My sister is far better equipped and far better able to be a caregiver. She took care of my mother in a way that I could not. For a perfect tell example. Tell me about that. Yeah, tell me yeah, about this, that. Here's a perfect example. When I went to India, I basically observed my mother doing all the things for my father, including things like feeding him. I always offered to help. And I said, why didn't you let me do it? No, 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 I'll take care of it. No, 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 I've got this was always the response that I got. So I did what I could. I stood next to her. I was always in the same room. I, you know, I, I did what I could but I was largely ineffectual in that regard. When my sister got there, she pulled a chair into the room, made my mother sit her ass down and said, I'm doing this. You need to get some rest. She and knew. is that something you feel like you couldn't stand up or not stand up to your mother, but to say, no, like this is, this is yeah. the line. Yeah. I think that part of it is because I'm very much like my father. 
So we're both a bit, we do things quickly and we do things a little bit sloppy. <laughs> it's a little attention to detail. I'm also a slight, well, I am a klutz. So I think my mother was always concerned that I would spill something or that I would, which is to a, to a point valid, but I wouldn't have, I, it wasn't like it would be any harm. She wasn't willing to loosen her standards. So, and I've always felt like I couldn't live up to them. So I just was used to not trying. My sister, on the other hand, is very much like my mother. And so she behaved with her in the way that my mother has always behaved with others. So she proved to be the more able caregiver mm. to my mother. And then after my father passed away, I thought I would be the person I had to be responsible to be the executor, to be this, to that. My brother took care of all of it. And, you know, that, you know, boy, you are really hitting it here because you know, when I teach, I talk about defining caregiver roles amongst the family, you know, listen, decide who can take the sight of blood, who can take the smells, who can do this, you know, who's better with accounting and paperwork, you know, who wants to get on the phone and, you know, can, you know, translate medical terminology in a way that everyone can understand. But all of that doesn't speak to ableness. You know, that is really clutch. That doesn't speak to, to ableness. And I, you know, you're really resonating with me there because I think there's many, you know, my, the whole core of impactful caregiving, you know, how I came to form this platform was to say, hey, you know, I do this all day, every day, but I'm melting now, <laughs> you know, I'm in the mm-hmm. know, but this is horrible. And if I'm in the know and I know this, what is the layman feeling right now? So, right. so that's really, really key kind of taking your own pulse and saying, you know, this I'm able to do this over here. Yeah. 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 I could take the month to just be there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. that that was really valuable. And my sister was there for two and a half weeks. And what she did was equally valuable. And I would just add to what you were saying in terms of taking a pulse. The other things that I think caregivers need to do is to put aside guilt and ego. And so one of the questions that you had asked earlier is, am I still processing all of this? I think that, yes, of course, I'm processing the actual loss. But the loss itself taught me something about myself. And that is also part of what I am processing. I had to give up the guilt of not being able to be the one or not Mm. having the best tools or or the, the idea that my siblings stepping in and doing this kind of work didn't rob me or deprive me of anything that it was just something that they were willing to do. And it was okay for me to step back and let them do it. The other thing I had to let go of was ego because as the oldest, I was the one who was always praised for being the responsible one for taking care for this, for that. Didn't mean my siblings weren't that way. It just meant that I was the one who got recognized. And so I had to put my ego aside and say, you know what? 
they're better at this than I am. Mm. And mm. that's fine. That doesn't make any of us less functional as adults. So I need to mm -hmm. let my ego go away, keep it in check, let people say and do what they want to do and let the experts take care of it. So how did you, how did you arrive to this? What process did you go through to say, you know what, this is not serving me to feel this weight that it wasn't me in, you know, in that kind of ultimate role, you know, at bedside? I think that it takes a, it, I didn't feel it in that moment. In that moment, I just kept, I was really, really skilled at self-flagellation. So I do that mental whipping of myself saying, why didn't you do this? Why did you, I should have taken care. I should have. I did something too, that I was very surprised by. I haven't done this before, which is my mother asked me to do something very simple, which was to mail a check to her charity as a donation. She gave me the check. I came home to the States and I never mailed it. And mm -hmm. I'm not the irresponsible one. But in that moment, I, I don't know why I didn't do that. That mm -hmm. is not something I'll ever figure out. I did eventually mail the check. And they did eventually get it. But it was one of those things where it was like, why am I incapable of doing something so simple? And that's when I started to recognize that, okay, I never grieved in this way before. Maybe that's part of what's happening. Gotcha. Because that's what I was going to say. It sounds like it was grief unresolved or not mm -hmm. acknowledged in that moment, you know, because that that's a sense of closure, too. It was closure, right. her closure, but not yours in that moment. Right. Yeah. Right. So you say you're like your father. What is the best of him that you continue to carry with you and that even you may pass on to your students? you know, in your current role? My father made friends everywhere he went. Everywhere he went. I wouldn't call him an extrovert. I'm definitely an extrovert. I wouldn't necessarily call him an extrovert. He wasn't, he talked a lot, but you could tell when he asked you a question, he was listening to your response. And it's great because there was just something genuinely kind and good about him. When he passed away, my parents lived in, live, well, my mother still lives in a community. It's a, like a co-op, like what you have in New York, but it's a cooperative of bungalows, not of apartment. It's not an apartment building. So these are a series of like 40 or 50 bungalows in a particular geographic area that are, it's like a gated community. So everybody knows everybody else because everybody will go walking and they got to know each other even better during COVID. When my father passed, every single person in that community came to pay their respects. Wow. Talking about 50 plus people who came to pay their respects because everybody knew who he was. And I think that's the best of my father that I can say I have. And I know that's something that is appreciated because I don't know how many people are just friendly anymore. Yeah. 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 And tell me about what is the best of your culture 
that you carry day to day. And I have to say that I really appreciate. So I was raised in the Hindu tradition and I really appreciate a lot of the ways in which the Hindu tradition looks at death. Mm. I'd have a lot of friends say to me, your dad isn't gone. He's still there. He's watching over you. He's this, that, and the other. And I just kept wanting to say, no, actually, I don't think that's the case. I think my father has truly gone on. And that's a beautiful thing because in Hindu tradition, the gift is being released from this endless cycle of birth and death. And you get your release by fulfilling your functions, but also just letting go, being willing to let go. I think at the end of his life, my father was really, he was ready to let go. He didn't know anybody. He wasn't connected to anybody. It was his time. And I feel like when we send him off to be with his, to be with the communal spirit, whatever you want to call it, whether it's God or what have you, when we send him off, he, he left. He's not here anymore and he's not coming back. And I find that. I actually find that somewhat comforting in an odd way. It's very counterintuitive. I don't really see myself as a particularly religious person. But that aspect of the, the, the ritual and the tradition around death, I found very comforting. And I know that's antithetical to a lot of religious traditions, but no, he's not coming back. And that's a good thing. It means and, that and he's you know, free. Yeah, I, I find that to be empowering also to your story. In, in a in a converse way, because here is this, you know, woman who chose her past, you know, to, you know, be free of, you know, the traditional female role in her culture mm -hmm. and is now okay with letting go. I think that that's a that's a point for all caregivers really to, you know, because for me, caregiving is a daily, a daily letting go. It is a daily acceptance of dealing with someone who's no longer who they were. <laughs> and so there is a daily grief and weight in that and being okay, you know, in, in baby steps, in, in my shoes, in baby steps to accept that each day that, you know, right. this person is not what I hope them or expect them to be or who they even want to be at this juncture. And so I'm going to honor them as best I can in this space. But yeah, letting go of, you know, expectations of roles, of understanding mm -hmm. ableness. I think you've given us a lot of themes here to unpack. So boy, this was awesome. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you so much. Anything else you want to share with our care pod community i think that talking about this is a really productive way of dealing with it but i think it's also useful to recognize that most people everybody experiences death in some way shape or form very few people know how to talk about it yeah so it's not just being forgiving of yourself but it's also being forgiving of the people around you who may not know mm -hmm. what to say and what you might need and could fumble every now and again and that's fine that's fine. That's okay. That yeah. doesn't mean you have to cut them out. It doesn't mean you have to say that the relationship is spoiled in some way, but it's it's important. You talk about it, you think about it, and it's a continuous process. Absolutely. And being, you know, just being okay. Being free to, you know, 
you know, they talk about the sick role, the caregiver role, you know, all of these roles, like to, to just be free to say, you know what, I, I just want to sit with you and hear your story. Right. And, you know, I've had friends who, you know, have had loved ones pass say to me, you know, the most comforting thing to them was just to have someone sit with them. Like mm -hmm. nothing really had to be said. You know, I think sometimes we feel that we have to have so much to say, right. um, but also, you know, when the person's ready to be able to, you know, shed light or express their emotions is important as well. Right. So, yeah. So thank you for hanging out with us on the Care Pod. Uh, I appreciate your time. I think a lot of what you've offered will empower families, especially those with siblings and You've definitely given me a hot topic on ableness versus role definition. So that is amazing. So thank you so much for hanging with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the questions. And I want to also thank you because you have actually helped me process some of this information. I verbalized things for the first time that I think I knew in my head, but I'd never actually put into words. So thank you for that. Good stuff. Good stuff. Thanks again. Great information right from the source. For more information on how to caregive like a boss, check out impactfulcaregiving.com. Want to be a guest on the show? Contact us at carepod at impactfulcaregiving.com.